Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. On the show today, we have Chris Roop. Chris is the executive director of the Fresno Office of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, an organization that does amazing things to support and advocate for people struggling with mental illness and the families that support them. We talk about all things mental illness, portrayals of mental illness in Hollywood, her own personal journey, as well as things like Tri-Tip and Wonder Woman. I know you'll love this episode. Let's go meet Chris. Chris, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Ah, oh, that is a great question. Um, I am a big fan of Doghouse, Doghouse Grill. Sweet. And what do you order? Um, I order a side of tri-tip, a side of bacon crumbles, side of cheese, side of avocado, um, and then I put that all in a big bowl and mix it together, add just a touch of barbecue sauce, and that's my favorite meal. What the hell? I've never heard of this before. What is this? Why? So... Are you, you like all these things that they make separately and you just create your own dish from it? When did this I start? I do. Well, I've been doing that probably for about a year now. I, I, I eat a lot of meat. Um, my, my answer would have been anywhere that has a really good steak. Um, okay. But my favorite go-to place is Doghouse because I can order that. I can order um, a side and it's just a bowl of chopped up tri-tip and then I put all the extra fixings in it. So it's a high meat keto style um, meal um, and it's tasty. That's the word that I was going to bring up. It sounded like it was avoiding the bread. And, you know, the bread in, in many ways at Dog Hat, I mean, you know, the bread's fine, but it's not something to write home about. You're not, it's not a fresh baguette. You know, it's a, it's a deli, deli bread. Exactly. Um, and you don't go there for that. But I guess my follow-up question is, where would you go to get a nice steak in town if everything was open? Richard's Steakhouse. I, I'm not familiar. Um, I think it's, oh gosh, I can't even remember the street. Um, maybe Belmont might be okay. the street that it's on. Um, I know it's just as I come off the 41 um, onto Blackstone heading south into downtown. Okay. Um, it's just a great meal. Um, and the, the atmosphere, you know, that, that has a lot to do with it as well as um, the, the atmosphere of the restaurant that you're in. And that's what I love about Doghouse. Everybody is so upbeat. They're, they're quick. They have a system that moves along fast. Um, no matter who you're interacting with, they have, it's just a pleasant experience in addition to a good meal. And it's the same with Richard's. Um, everyone that's um, serving you um, any type of service there, they're always just great people um, to interact with. Yeah, Fresno does have some good good meat options if you're a meativore. I mean, I, you know, I live pretty close to Westwoods and that was when I first moved here was kind of my uh, staple, if you will. Um, but there's lots of other great places. Lately, um, my favorite tri-tip sandwich in town is at Heirloom. They do this kind of like, and they do, and see, they do, you know, Doghouse is great, but they do, they do the good bread with it too. So they, they take it all the way, all the steps. And, you know, uh, for me, for me, it's like, you know, bread, bread can't be overlooked. Bread is... <laughs> Bread is the delivery system. And I you know? can pass on the bread, but yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to trying heirloom. Um, I've heard so many good things about it, so I'll have to give it a try. 
So let's let's get into talking about uh, Nami. Uh, and to be honest, you know, it sounded like maybe like a Japanese cooking tool or something. Like when I first looked at it, and I I I it wasn't readily decipherable. Uh, so what is Nami, and how did you? Uh, what was your path to be becoming the director of? The Fresno chapter of that organization. Good, great question. We do get calls for reservations and to find oh, out. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. no. The, is there what's that? There's a famous restaurant, Numi, or there's some something like that. There right? is. We actually we have a, a Japanese restaurant here, not too far, just near Heirloom, as a matter of fact. And so uh, over the past year and a half or so, we get those calls. So I have their number taped up here, um, right by my computer, in case I need to pass someone on. That's hilarious. But Nami is um, the largest. Um, grassroots mental health advocacy organization. We've existed for about 40 years and it's an acronym. It stands for National Alliance on Mental Illness. And we were created um, in the late 70s by a group of family members who have loved ones living with serious mental illness. And what they found on this journey were a couple of things that they felt they needed to address. They found many barriers to accessing resources to provide the level of care that their loved ones needed. They also found that there are not enough resources to provide care that is needed. Um, but one of the bigger things they faced through all of it was stigma. Um, they really couldn't open up and talk about their challenges. They couldn't talk about their own emotional journey. Um, they couldn't talk about their needs um, in a safe environment. And so they created our organization to do just that. And we provide education, support, and advocacy for all people affected by mental health challenges. Um, two unique things about the work that we do, because we're not providing treatment and diagnosis. We leave that to our credentialed professionals and, and hospital settings to do that. But we are providing everything at no cost to our community. So there's never a financial barrier to accessing us as a resource. Um, but we deliver it all from a lived experience perspective. Um, and that's, that's the unique bonding component for everyone that, um, steps on this journey. Um, and that's a very different lens than a provider or an emergency department or a first responder that's interacting with someone with mental health um, challenges, whether it be embarking on knowing I have challenges and going to get help or I'm in crisis, I have no insight, and now I need involuntary care. Um, and so uh, coming to NAMI, um, I'm glad you asked how I got here. My background is not mental health, um, not a social worker either. Um, I have been with NAMI almost seven years, but I came out of the world of banking. Uh, my education is in business with a concentration in marketing. Um, I was a banker for a little over 20 years. And due to industry changes and things changing in my life, I found myself unemployed and not quite sure what I was going to do. I, I had an attempt briefly in real estate lending and found out that wasn't my cup of tea at all. Um, and a friend invited me to join this organization to do some fundraising work um, because sales is my background. And I was reluctant. And I was reluctant because in the name, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, I honestly felt I had no connection to this organization and didn't understand it. Um, and my initial thoughts, and I share this openly because I, it makes a point about stigma. I, I thought to myself, um, that's an organization that deals with mental illness and I don't know anything about it, nor does it apply to me. 
And who in their right mind would give people that have mental illness, who would give them their money? Who, who would trust that? Um, my, <laughs> my perspective change once I arrived here, I eventually accepted a position here to come do this work. And um, I started to learn about our programs as any salesperson would do. I have to know what I have available so I can go sell that in the community. And I realized people don't know who we are. Um, they were, uh, it, it, mental illness just isn't discussed openly. We're doing better, but we talk more openly about mental health than we do mental illness. Um, and in learning about our programs here, I was able to, to really have some aha moments. I had an aha moment that the significant other in my life at the time lived with untreated mental illness and substance use issues that created a very chaotic relationship. Um, I recognized at some point later on that that relationship was, it was abusive, very abusive, but I wasn't healthy enough at the time to really acknowledge that either. And so my biggest aha moment was learning that I actually lived with mental health challenges. And deep down, I knew that. I just didn't want to speak up and say anything about that. But I did recognize after learning quite a bit through NAMI's work and being surrounded by very supportive people in safe environments to talk about it, I realized I actually had to do what I was encouraging others to do to help their, those other people. I realized I was the other. Um, and I don't like being referred to as crazy or um, uh, difficult or any of those things when, when I wasn't well and it was because my mental health, had it was just, it had declined so badly um, and I needed professional help to get better. And I had to step into that system of care, had to, to find um, treatment options that worked um, so that I could get better. I'm much healthier now. Um, and I share my story openly. Um, I'm a survivor of multiple suicide attempts. Um, I believe that had we had we had a platform to talk about mental illness and and really mental health challenges openly and the importance of caring for ourselves with healthy habits um, and the impact that lack of healthy habits could have on our mental health, losing our insight, I think my story would look very different. Um, there wouldn't be as many challenges. There wouldn't be um, as much of the darkness that was there. Um, so I understood what it meant to have lived experience, um, and the importance of using that, that journey to help others. And so here I am today, um, still, um, moving this organization. Um, our mission is to give hope and improve the quality of life for all people affected by mental health challenges. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, when I spend uh, some time with family members on the phone or an individual who's struggling and they say, you're the first person that's listened, you're the first person who I feel really does understand this journey um, and thank you for sharing and thank you for your time. Um, I feel like I have hope now. Um, it's, it's, worth, it's worth all the operational challenges we run into as a nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, it feels like, you know, you have these mental health professionals and then you have uh, a community, but you need a translator, right? You know, because there's, I mean, and I want to kind of jump ahead in the questions that I sent you to talk about stigma, because there is like these, you know, there's cultural understandings of mental illness uh, that are based on myths and are based on misunderstandings of what's happening. Um, can you briefly talk about your understanding of uh, some of the common stigmas? Uh, what where do stigmas come from and how does, how does education and 
what you guys do help to uh, not get rid of the stigma, but, you know, talk, get people to look at it with fresh eyes? Absolutely. Thanks for asking the question about stigma too, because it is something that is a big component of the work that we do. Um, we want to reduce stigma. We want to raise awareness for mental health and the importance of it and recognizing signs and symptoms when it's changing. Stigma is a big barrier and there are some individuals out there that will say, but you can't see, touch, or feel that. Um, but stigma is stereotyping mental illness. It's labeling mental illness. It is discriminating against those who live with different behaviors. Um, and it can often be bullying um, individuals who are different as well. Um, and a lot of it is in, in language that we use. And you know, prior to coming to NAMI, I loosely used language that was unkind, for lack of a better word. It was it's, it's just not helpful for anyone struggling with mental health challenges. And yet I thought it was funny. Uh, um, I like to make people laugh and I was laughing and making others laugh at the expense of someone who is hurting, who is struggling. Um, and when you can recognize that in yourself, you can change the way you see it and the way you behave and the, and the language that you use. Um, for me, cultural um, components. Um, I'm Mexican. Um, it is just not discussed in, in my culture um, openly. I don't know that we had words for it. It was also considered shameful if you had mental health challenges in any parts of your family. That was the stuff you kept quiet and behind closed doors. People might say, keep that in the closet. That's not something that needs to come out because um, that's your your private business and it would bring um, an, an image to the whole family because many, many, uh, many years ago and, and probably still now, um, often family members, the, the parents, mothers are the ones who are looked at for the challenges that their children may have mental, uh, mentally um, being blamed for it. You, you didn't love them enough. You loved them too much. You didn't coddle them as often as you should have. You coddled them too much. Um, lots of shame was brought to mothers. Um, and so we look back generational as well. Um, I work with a broad spectrum of family members and I can hear the differences when speaking with them. Um, younger families, younger parents um, are more open to talking about the challenges they see with their children versus some older generations and then the support system they lack around them because mental illness is just um, again, you can't see it, touch it, feel it like you could a broken bone or you um, or a rash on your skin um, or something that would show up in an x-ray. Um, so it's difficult for people to, to really grasp unless they walk this journey either themselves or with a loved one. And I, I often hear people say, oh, well, we all live with men. We all have some mental illness. And I disagree with that. We don't all have mental illness. We do all have mental health. Um, and we, we experience mental health challenges at different times in our lives. But not all of us live with mental illness and have a diagnosis that we have to manage through various ways of treatment, um, coping skills. Um, so I, I, I find opportunity to educate about that because that could be stigmatizing as well it, to invalidate and dismiss something more serious um, and having mental illness means you're going to need to step into a system of care to get help um, and that's difficult to do 
when you're not well and healthy and you can't think clearly and your emotions aren't balanced and you just don't have the behaviors that would be your healthy self. Um, and so we do need to keep that in mind because if we aren't creating safe space for people to open up and say, I'm experiencing challenges, I believe I need some help and have someone just sit with us, then we will continue to have those barriers for people getting help sooner than later. And research shows the sooner we can get to treatment, the better we will feel and the better our outcomes will be. Yeah, I mean, it's such a complicated thing because you, I feel like you've got two competing uh, languages going on around mental health and mental illness. You know, mental health is something that you want people to kind of take control of, right? You want to care for yourself. You want to meditate. You want to go on walks. You want to do all that shit that makes people feel better. Um, and then at the same time, you know, mental illness, you, you can't meditate your way out of, if, if you have a bipolar diagnosis, you can't meditate your way out of that. Sure, you can maybe, you know, help yourself alleviate some of the, you know, when you're in a, in a state or something, but you, you, it's not something that's necessarily in your control. And I feel like parents too, uh, maybe, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but I think parents maybe overestimate how much parenting has to do with a child's mental illness in that, right? I mean, genetically, some people are born with mental illnesses that's outside of the control. And so this concept of shame that you're talking about, yep. I think is related to this idea that you have some agency over some of these things. Now, it's true that certainly, you know, <laughs> people can contribute to mental oh. health problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we know trauma impacts people's mental health. We know that in physical injuries can impact someone's mental health. And then we know there's the biological dispositions of someone. So if we had quick, easy answers, we wouldn't have the complexity of what we see in our communities today with the lack of treatment, the, the lack of resources that exist and the, the barriers that are there and um, and, and just the lack of understanding that surrounds mental illness. And you're right. I'm using two different words there. Mental health, we all have. We need to care for it. We need to know what it looks like when it changes. When is it mental illness? Well, that's a great thing for people to know because it becomes mental illness when it is disrupting our ability for our daily responsibilities. We're having challenges with those. And it also disrupts our healthy relationships. Um, that's when we know it is more than a mental health coping skill. We really need to start seeing someone professionally to help us. Meditation is a component of our treatment journey. Um, and so someone living with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, while meditation alone may not help them, it is definitely one of the tools they could be using to maintain stability with their, their, their diagnosis. And that's what we really need others to understand is treatment looks different for different folks. There are some common pieces to it, but we find what works for us. We only know what works for us if we know, if we're aware of what's available and the, the positive impacts it can have for us. Yeah. I mean, if you're living with mental illness and you don't have the knowledge of like the signs that you would have it or that there would be a way to ask for help um, and you just have people telling you, well, maybe you just need to exercise more. Are you getting enough sleep? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, I think you're right. And I think that's why you guys are such a critical comp uh, component of the mental health system 
um, because without the knowledge of what to look for, you know, I mean, you're, it, it, help will come, but it's when crisis happens, when right. the police officers show up because the person's off their meds and there's some horrific incident, you know, yes. where they're trying to deal with something that they're not prepared for. Um, right. And, and you look at, you know, how many, you know, I was challenged recently by someone I was sharing, speaking with, and they said, well, don't you believe that law enforcement officers need more than the mental health training hours they have? And some, some have eight hours of training, some have 16. Um, we've been supporting a mental health crisis intervention training with Fresno Police Department for the last four or five years and it includes multiple agencies, not just Fresno Police Department. Um, 40 hours is a lot of mental health training for a law enforcement officer. And I would, I believe it's ongoing training that should occur because those are perishable skills for them to learn how to de-escalate and support someone in crisis and know the resources available in their community. But they are not our mental health professionals. We have professionals that spend thousands of hours getting the credentials that they have to work with and support individuals living with mental illness. And we want them to be available to support the treatment, the ongoing care. So it, it, I, I, I see crisis intervention training, I believe is a powerful tool for our first responders. Um, it's not the answer to end all of the, the challenges they face, but it is most definitely an effective resource for them um, because crisis, when crisis occurs, unfortunately, they are the ones we have to call um, when it becomes an involuntary situation. Um, and it's, it's, it's tough because yeah. the, the presence of law enforcement still creates an image of criminalizing an individual for having a mental health break. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, I deal with the same thing. So I'm an educator and like, you know, just like police, you know, we get these auxiliary trainings that are meant to enhance our teaching ability by giving us other tools. Um, you know, but I'm not, I know that I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. You know, I know that I'm not that, and I'm not going to try to do therapy with a kid. You know, I, I look at the tools that I'm getting as uh, knowledge of what to look for, so then I can redirect somebody. And Absolutely. I think, and I think the issue is, is like, is like, it's we can train officers, but if they don't have the resources for how to redirect people, then what the hell are we doing with our time? I don't know. My hands are up in the air because that is one of the biggest um, gaps we need to fill. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want individuals who live with mental health challenges to be criminalized in any way. Unfortunately, the way our law is written, um, the way the system is designed for people to access the care um, and then stay in that care for effective stabilization for their illnesses, especially serious mental illnesses. Um, unfortunately, people enter the criminal justice system more frequently than they would enter the mental health system at times because of the, because of all those pieces. Um, I, I always say there's, we, NAMI fills in the gap. We have our professional providers. We have our first responders that we need to help us get our loved ones where they need to see, um, seek treatment when it's involuntary, especially. Um, but then what happens in between when they're placed on a hold? What does that mean and what's going to happen next? 
who's going to explain that to the family member? Who's going to tell an individual who's been placed on a hold what their next steps can be for their own journey of recovery? And we fill that gap in. But I say there's, a, there's, there's some things that need to be happening at, at the same time. We need to develop a workforce because right now we're seeing a shortage. Well, we've, we've known there's been a shortage of mental health professionals, um, especially in our communities. So we need to in, in, increase our workforce. We need to have access of um, readily available mental health professionals that aren't burning out because they have too many, um, too many cases, too, too much on their own workload. Um, we need to have adequate resources for our loved ones to receive care within our communities. So we need additional community resources available. Um, and I don't wanna jump ahead into questions either, but we'll talk a little bit more about treatment options for people who need care. Um, but in addition to that, we, while we can work on increasing and improving our workforce and then increasing our resources, we need to be able to access the resources. And the way the law is currently written, sadly, we force people to be at their absolute worst before we can intervene and help someone that we have watched be ill, have no insight to their illness, need care, they, they are losing things in life, and yet we cannot intervene until they meet one of three pieces of criteria, which are literally at their worst. And that was the change in the mental health law that we, we needed to see. We needed to see mental health law change because people were held in inhumane conditions, understaffed, overcrowded, horrible, absolutely horrible things happened to them while they were in care. And it was not easy to get out of those facilities if they improved or if they didn't want to participate in those treatments that were available and forced upon them. But the pendulum swung clear to the other end. Um, and it, I believe it's inhumane the way we allow our loved ones to live with their mental illness before we step in and help them. And we've got to find something in the middle. Right. And that's what I was going to talk about because a lot of the issues, and we're going to talk about uh, homelessness in a second, but a lot of the issues we see um, is we have, you know, basically a, a psychiatric system that had these state hospitals all across the country uh, that housed a lot of people that either their families couldn't care for them, they would be a danger to themselves. I mean, we've all seen movies with these state hospitals, you know, where uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the one. Uh, I think it's got Jack Nicholson in it. Um, but anyway, there, there are still state hospitals, but they're far fewer. Um, and, you know, a lot of the people are there because of criminal activity. Right. Um, and it's not, it's, you know, I, 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 I agree. The pendulum has swung and I, it's hard to know what the solution is because it feels like you, the only solution is to swing back and have more facilities where people are, I don't want to say mandated, but you know, I mean, there's some, I, I don't know. I mean, so what, what, what is your, what is your ideal, what is your middle ground between what we had before, which kind of was a uh, kind of not defeatist, but like accepting that these people are just going to be in these facilities and this is where we keep them versus yeah. this new system where it's like human autonomy, everyone can do whatever they want. And then, you know, we have, you know, horrible, tragic things happen uh, when people get out of control. So what's the middle ground look like? 
So it, it, that is a difficult question because the middle ground requires quite a bit of money. It, it, it bottom line requires some significant funding. Again, we've got to have adequate workforce to fill the resources, meaning the facilities that we need. Do I believe that we need to open facilities? Not at the capacity that they were at. I do believe we need additional facilities to place our loved ones in care especially when they have no insight and they are vulnerable to harm. They are vulnerable to danger. Um, they are vulnerable to, um, to, to predatory behavior by others, to becoming victims of crime. You know, there's, there's this myth uh, and narrative out there that mental illness is dangerous, The people with mental illness are dangerous. And research proves over and over and over that people who live with mental illness are more likely to be victims of crime than they are to commit crime. But a failed system can place someone in the criminal justice system, uh, a failed mental health system can put someone in the criminal justice system rather quickly. Um, and and that's, that's just an, a, an injustice to those individuals who, whose brains don't process in a healthy way. Um, I believe we need to be able to, as caregivers, as family members, as providers in a community, I believe we do need to be able to intervene sooner, sooner than later. But we have to do that respectfully because I don't believe that we should force medications on people that have some extreme side effects. I don't believe we should force people into living conditions that are more harmful to them because they are triggering things for that individual based on their whatever their illness and, and trauma journey may look like. Um, it's easy to say that someone should live in in four, you know, in, in shelter that's four walls, but if there has been trauma that has occurred within four walls somewhere in their journey, that might not be a realistic um, path for them at that particular time. And so we have to honor what people do need and be able to hear them um, and then safely keep them. So that's, if we're gonna return back to facilities to place people, we are going to need many of them. They are going to need to be humane and of the utmost quality. It shouldn't be the institutional and asylum environment that we've seen portrayed in some history documentary stuff, but also in our movies. Um, we, we should never return to anything like that. It should be done with dignity. And we do have facilities that exist that are done that way. Um, and they're not large in numbers. Um, and they're for extended stay for people who are conserved um, for temporary reasons. Uh, those are done in a, a very kind, compassionate um, way. And I, I heard a director of one of the facilities in our valley who said to his staff when they opened a few years ago, he said, I wanna remind every one of my staff members that you come to work in our patient's home. This is where they live. So you are coming into their home every day, respect their home. It was one of the most beautiful things I'd heard from an administrator of a facility that held people involuntarily. You know, and I, I to go back to the stigma thing, you know, I think it, there, there are other things that our society deals with that have stages or grades of care. So I think about alcoholism, for example. You know, you have places like really intense court-mandated rehabs 
Then you have rehabs that are for people that are just trying to get better. Then you have AA. Then you have all these different steps along this ladder uh, because everyone is on this spectrum of like, I need to be in intensive care versus I just need occasional help. I need outpatient help. I need whatever. And it, it feels like we need more of a spectrum uh, kind of approach. And that might be just related to stigma because people might think, well, you're either crazy or you're not crazy. And so you're either in the mental hospital or you're at home on your meds. Well, and, and it's there's like, there's a, myth, a range. Right. And there's the myth that, gosh, if I had, if, if I had to be in a mental hospital, then I have some serious problems, right? I, there's something wrong with me. And yes and no, my brain might not be functioning properly and I needed to get care for it. If I have pneumonia, I'm going to the hospital to receive care. If I have cancer, I'm going to see a, a, a specialist about treatment for that so that I can get healthier and overcome that. And yet that's so so openly accepted and, and just the norm for folks. But when our brains get sick, for some reason, people aren't so, and they're not so easy and eager to go get help that they need. And it is, that's the stigma around mental illness. Um, and again, it's not always because we have mental illness. Our, our, our mental health may be so challenged that we need to get help and get back to that healthier place. We may or may not end up with a diagnosis. Um, the larger, you know, one in five people are living with mental health challenges at any given time in any given year. Well, 2020, increase that number significantly yeah. significantly um suicidal thinking um increased significantly in the year 2020 and that's alarming um and we're still i believe on the front end of the wave that this pandemic is causing for people who experience mental health challenges and so if we have a flood of people coming into the system of care and yet we didn't already have adequate resources for the people who were already needing the care and, and trying to access it, we're, we're going, going to see mental health crisis occur um, at an alarming rate in the, in the future. And it won't be a short period of time. We're going to see that for years. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a different challenge than like, say, you know, I had the two co-directors of the food bank on a while ago. And we talked about, you know, hunger during the pandemic and like, that's a pretty simple equation. They just kind of ramp up what they're doing. I mean, they have to raise funds. They have to go out and seek this. They have to get more volunteer support. They have, there's things that they, but it's everything that they know how to do, but like creating a bigger, stronger mental health care apparatus, that's much more complicated. And Absolutely. let's, let's talk, let's jump to homelessness. Cause that's something that I feel like, is something that we can, uh, you know, talk about what's going on currently a little bit. Um, so we have a new mayor, uh, Jerry Dyer, and one of the first things I heard uh, was him, uh, how he was going to approach the homeless problem. And if you drive around Fresno down the 41, you've seen what's happened since the pandemic has started, which is that there's more homelessness. Uh, there's more people living in different places that were, you know, the rest of us in homes are not used to. Um, but what I, what I think about in terms of homelessness um, is that not so much that they're homeless, but what's causing the homelessness. And I know some people, you know, have these myths that, you know, people that are homeless are just, they just want to be homeless. And that might be true, but I, you know, I, I, at least the data I think shows that 
there's, you know, the, the correlation between homelessness and, and mental illness is, is high. And by just addressing the homeless part of it, so the four walls, like you talked about, doesn't address the problem. So how, how do you view the homeless problem? And do you think that kind of diagnosis of homeless as the problem is part of the problem in itself? Again, it falls back on resources and, and it isn't open a facility. It isn't put doctors, you know, hire more uh, mental health professionals in our area because this journey is complex and different for different folks. We have to have options, different kinds of options that are suitable for the different needs of the people out there. Some are living with mental health challenges that include a substance use component and both of those um, illnesses need to be addressed um, at the same time because if they're not, you know, you're treating one, but you're not treating the other and which one's causing which, well, we, we may or may not know that, but if we treat them at the same time, the, um, the opportunity for that person to find recovery increases, it's, it's quicker um, and they get back to a better quality of life where maybe they can manage their, their symptoms that they have in a healthier way, um, they'll be able to uh, find um, stability to um, find employment again, um, to live in um, appropriate housing. Um, and, you know, again, when, when I think of housing, I think of my home. Um, that's not always what someone wants. Um, and does mental illness cause people to be homeless? Um, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I do know that individuals who live in homes with family members or uh, even on, on their own independently, if their symptoms aren't treated, um, there are boundaries that are set. Those boundaries may be other family members. Um, that loved one might not be able to live in their home with them because of safety it, uh, reasons. Or maybe that individual has decided they're not safe in that home um, and they leave. Uh, maybe they're, um, uh, the boundaries are that of a landlord-tenant situation and the rules of uh, the housing unit weren't followed. And so now they've been removed from their shelter that they have. Um, and so I don't think it's fair to say, well, people want to be homeless. I, I, I don't believe that. I, I do believe there is a population um, out there that does choose to live in that setting. Um, but I don't think it's the majority of, of our homeless population. I believe we lack resources. And so if we move people from one space to another, what problem did that solve? Did that clean up what we were visibly able to see? So does that make people feel more comfortable? Or are we moving them into a space where they, were, will, where they will then be able to connect with the appropriate resources that they need to actually get better and find permanent housing? And that's my hope to see a resource that's available. And we do have something in our community. It's called a map point, a multi-agency access point. Um, where an individual has multiple needs in the community and they go to this one location, um, a significant intake process occurs, identifying all the needs that are there. Biggest need for those individuals when they go is housing. One that's lower on the scale is actually mental health services. When you look at what the top, um, we're not even in the top five. I, I think we rank number seven, if I'm not mistaken, and I hope I don't misquote that. Um, for anyone who's listening, but 
Um, that's not their point. That's not the main reason someone's accessing that resource. It fell, in my thought, it fell kind of low um, when you look at the bigger picture. So we do need, um, we need adequate housing resources. You know, we have some new programs coming in and I hear about a couple of units that, a couple hundred units that are gonna open. I hear about a resource that's 30 plus units that are gonna open, but we are short thousands of units for people who need housing in our county. Um, so where do we change that? Well, we get people better. We get people better so that they can sustain themselves so that they're not needing, um, so that the only option isn't assisted living. It is something where they can provide for themselves. And I do believe there is a population of our homeless community that can move in that direction so that they have a better quality of life. Um, and, and that should be our goal is really to help people get better, not just put them in a housing unit, not just put them in a centralized location, but really work on getting people overall better. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, politicians just by the nature of their job, their incentives are not based on uh, the, the perceptions of homeless people or the problems of the homeless, even though that's part of the job. I mean, ultimately you're in an elected office and I mean, we know what people are like uh, in Fresno. They don't want to see it. They just want to move it down, down there next, next to that brewery full circle where there's just a mob. But ultimately what that does is it puts people in a more dangerous environment. Um, you know, I, if, if I'm just thinking about what's best for a homeless person, I would much rather have them living on the side of the freeway than living in a community where there's maybe a lot more substance access, uh, there's a lot more danger potentially. Um, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm not an expert on this. I, I just, I see a problem which is that in, you know, in our society, we just prefer to push people into the criminal justice system to get away from us and not think about what's best for them uh, because they they did something that bothered us. They they erected a tent near the freeway, and I drive my Audi past it every day, and I'm just so mad to see that tent. And it's you know, we I mean, see it all the time. We see it's 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 got a name. It's it's also an acronym. It's NIMBY. It's not in my backyard, yeah. um, but it's somewhere else. You know, I hear the people in the various communities here in our county disputing over you know, the creation or development of a mental health facility in their area. And the, the, the response is, yeah, we know people need help, but we don't want that in our area because homes are around there, children are around there, um, and we don't want mental illness in our neighborhood. We don't want it attracting um, an, an, a, a population of people that we don't want to see or interact with. And again, that's stigma. That is stereotyping and discriminating against people who need help. And it doesn't, it, it's not effective. And why should I have to go if my loved one is ill or if I'm hospitalized and I want my family to see me because I know my, if I have support, the, my, my chances for recovery and finding stabilization increase. Um, if, if I'm hospitalized or my loved one is, why do I have to be in you know the outskirts of town where no you know to, to, there's whole lots of issues just to get there why do i have to seem you know like i'm being punished because i'm sick and i didn't even 
I, I didn't want this. I didn't get in a line and say, here, sign me up for double dose of mental illness because I want to see what it's like. It, we have to remember that people who live with mental health challenges, it's not their fault. They, it's not anything that someone caused or created. Um, if we knew what caused or created these things, we could get on the prevention side and really get ahead of things. But it's just so complex, we don't know that. There are things that can happen that can um, cause us to have mental health challenges. Um, that's why the education is component about our habits and our health and knowing signs and symptoms early. But, you know, we, and we talked earlier about this, the stigma and the shame of the family member. People who, you know, it, it, when a, a mother, especially, my, my heart hurts for moms and dads too, when they call and they say, you know, my, my child was the perfect child. They were, you know, the all-star of an athletic team. They were, they were on the honor roll. They were um, valedictorian. You know, they had all these achievements and whether they be academic or athletic or extracurricular of some sort. And then something happened and they're just not the same person anymore. It's heartbreaking to hear um, because we, we hear that. And, I, and I, I love them. They were in a home of love. We gave them everything they could need. And then this happened. So I don't understand why it happened. And again, it has nothing to do with you know, the, the parenting side of things most often and, and it, take away the, the trauma side of things. But right. For the, the healthy family that grows up with all, all basic needs met and a nurturing environment that doesn't indicate that it will never happen to your loved one. Um, and so I, I share with people, your life might not be personally impacted by mental illness at this particular time. We don't know what your future holds, especially those who plan to have children in the future or those who anticipate grandchildren in the future. Um, I, I tell them, what system of care do you want your loved one to be able to access if you need it? And as we transition into different stages of our life, even in an older adult population could need mental health care. What system of care do you want available for you if you are going to need to access it? Because if it's what we have now, it's challenging, even with the best insurance, even with a lot of money, people who are affluent can't necessarily have access to the care that's needed because the way the laws are written and the barriers to accessing that care. So we have a lot of work to do, um, but the goal should really be to get a person healthier, to have a better quality of life, um, to be able to live in a, in a thriving way in our community. And that may be defined differently by different people. Um, recovery is defined differently by, by individuals. So, you know, but, but that should be our goal as providers in the community, as those who are embarking on affecting change in our community. How do we help people get better? Giving people the opportunity to live on the sides of our freeways in the the shelters they've created is is that the best option we have you know I, I can tell you when i drive down the roads and i see people i have a different lens as i look at individuals because i always know there's a, a journey that took them there but it is painful to see um it's not painful from oh my gosh that's horrible i can't believe it's it's you know um 
that they're here and they've set up their space here. It's horrible that we don't have better options for people in our country and in our state. Um, I believe we're a, a state of wealth in many ways, and yet that's what we see. Um, and so it pains me in a different way. Yeah, it's such a complicated issue. And I think a lot of people can't have their minds changed until it's personally impacted them, like you were saying. I agree. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's like a lot of issues, social issues in our country, until you've been personally affected, you're less likely to be an advocate or be in support of uh, spending tax dollars or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, that's, you know, if, if there's more knowledge about there, about the things to look about, and there's less stigma about it, and it's more openly discussed, then maybe more people will uh, be open to, you know, thinking about our budgets in our counties and our cities. But yeah. I do want to transition to talking about uh, perception that's created by media. So mental illness has been mental, mental illness, there we go. Um, I said mental wellness. Mental illness has been portrayed in a lot of movies and TV shows. I mean, there's been, uh, you know, the big thing a few years ago was 13 Reasons Why. There was, you know, there's this great show. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's a boy that's on the spectrum. And it kind of shows his journey throughout. It's on Netflix. It's great. Uh, but what, maybe help us by identifying some shows or movies that have portrayed mental illness well and some that maybe... Uh, further stigmas or stereotypes? Yeah, and, and again, another great question to talk about. And, and I think about that, and you know, I, I'm gonna talk about when I was young. When I was young, there was a movie that, that was out and Sally Field was in it and it was called Sybil. And I remember watching that movie and I was absolutely intrigued and fascinated with the illness that she lived with. Um, which is, at the time, I think they called it split personality disorder. Um, it's now known or, or more commonly referred to as dissociative identity disorder. But I remember watching this movie and believing that everything in this movie was fact about that particular mental illness. And what I've learned as I've matured and gotten um, you know, a little older in my time is that Hollywood glamorizes mental health, they'll like glamorize anything for ticket sales, um, for ratings and viewing. And we have to be aware of that. I think the movies that are done best when portraying any type of mental health challenges are those movies who take time um, to really research the disorder with people who live with it, not just those providers who treat it, but including that component as well. Because if you're going to tell a story about a mental disorder, having knowledge of someone, and, and it's multiple someones, because what the way I experience PTSD, which is one of my diagnoses, it, it may be very different from the way someone else is experiencing that. The severity of my symptoms are different than others. And so by doing some research, it's really important that... Um, producers, writers do that. Um, and then including resources um, at, 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 as, as any of the, the movies are shared. Um, and that was one of the bigger controversial issues with 13 Reasons Why, um, is there were many, many um, social topics that were talked about. And the, the overall topic was suicide, and yet resources weren't provided. 
Um, and we need to include, when we are going to dig into the depths of those conversations and topics, we need to make sure we have resources available. So I believe it's a TV show. I, I, it's, um, uh, I think it's Chicago Med. Um, and I don't remember the station that it's on, but I know they will air certain episodes and at the end, they will run a PSA with a resource for someone to reach out for more information and support about mental health. Um, and not for a shameless plug by any means, but I know that NAMI was at the end of one of those episodes. Um, and it's wonderful to see um, our producers want to talk more about mental health challenges and raise awareness but also including where do you go learn more if you related to this? If you were, if you connected to this journey, where, do, where can you find more help? Um, and so, you know, um, there's a series out on HBO and I believe it came out this year and it's called, I Know This Much Is True. And it's actually based on a book by um, a gentleman by the name of Wally Lamb. It was written in 1998 and it's about an individual who lives with schizophrenia um, and he has a twin brother that does not have the diagnosis. And it's, it, it talks about his journey. It is a fictional story, but a, a great deal of research went into learning about someone who lives with paranoid schizophrenia was the original diagnosis that was explored in the very beginning. And so the author did extensive research and then did research from the family members perspective and then the providers perspective so that he brought a little lot of lived experience into a fictional story that made it very relatable and i'm grateful for that um a, a more um light-hearted movie to watch um that was done well with mental health is inside out um yeah and it was, you know, cause it's a, a movie about different emotions being felt and how you have to bring those emotions together. They've got to work together um, to overcome the, the symptoms that are starting to be felt by this young girl because she's had change in her life. Um, and so I think that's done in um, a very positive way. Um, there are some other movies that will talk about illnesses, um, but again, it's, it, they're glamorized and so they're short. They're an hour and a half to maybe two hours long. And we're talking about years of someone being on this journey with a diagnosis. Um, and so I, I think movies that I am, um, uh, Beautiful Mind, um, I think did do a good job of uh, portraying schizophrenia. Um, but again, it's a Hollywood movie, so there's glamorization in it. And we've just, we, we have to remember when we're watching movies about that. Um, Movies that I don't think were are, are so good because there's just a, a, a couple of them. Um, the movie Split, which was another movie about dissociative identity disorder, again, glamorized um, by Hollywood. Um, it, it, the end just, I mean, it's a movie, um, but the end was so fictional. Um, but it also portrayed someone as dangerous and harmful in the end. Um, and I know people who live with dissociative identity disorder and they are the most kind and loving people. Um, and, and as I, I watched that movie, uh, it just, it, it was painful to see how that um, ended. So I hope people don't watch movies thinking that this is mental illness because another one was Joker, um, uh, the movie Joker. 
And unfortunately, a lot of violence was portrayed in that. And again, we go back to creating this um, perception that people who live with mental illness are dangerous and harmful to our communities. Um, and that is, that, that's not true. Um, can someone living with mental illness be harmful and be involved in violence? Yes, but so can anybody else in our community. So it's not the mental illness component, but a failed system of care for someone um, and the inability to help them sooner than later um, could increase the, the chances of someone entering um, into those situations. But again, it's not, it's not the mental illness and it's not that individual. It's what was available and it's, it's the context of the situation. We have to look at all parts of it. Um, so media, when media portrays someone, you know, when, there's, when a story um, breaks, a um, lot of uh, armchair reporters, I guess, would be the right thing to say. A lot of commentary in um, uh, media stories about clearly it was mental illness, clearly, clearly they had mental health challenges, we need to do something. But I don't see those people advocating and affecting for change in our system. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love NAMI's organization is we have a foundation of advocacy. So we take our lived experience stories, we tell our barriers, we tell our hard days, we tell what happens in our home 24 seven behind those closed doors without us having law enforcement interaction. We can tell that story to our decision makers in our communities to affect change. And they work for us. Our decision makers, our, our legislators, our, all our politicians, our leaders, our city leaders, they work for us, but they need to hear what it is we need. We have to be able to get in front of them to tell that story effectively. Um, and that's, that, that's NAMI's advocacy work to be able to help people learn to tell that story so that when, when a movie comes out and, and someone knows my loved one lives with schizophrenia, they don't think I have this dangerous, violent person in my home um, that you see walking to the store because they can, they have abilities to be somewhat independent. You don't, there's no fear from that. There shouldn't be. Um, with proper treatment, um, our loved ones are, are, they're just, they're, one, they're still our wonderful loved ones, uh, yeah. but they need support. They need care. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's, it's, it's a literacy thing, you know, which is that because our culture is not as literate as we would hope it would be people then, you know, entertainment becomes educational. And, you know, I, I also saw a show recently that did one of those kind of, uh, yeah, PSA slash disclaimers at the beginning. It was um, uh, the show that had Kate Mara as the, the, the creepy teacher um, that has an affair with one of her students. Um, and at the begin at the beginning, it said, you know, this ep the show is going to sh show you grooming. And if you know someone that needs help, here's the number. And it did it at the beginning and the end. So I think, I think Hollywood is understanding that, you know, because our culture is what it is, that entertainment is, is tantamount to ed education these days. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's complicated because you want people to be able to make art that maybe stretches the limits of what science says or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, like, they're holding a weapon uh, that can be used to hurt people. And so it feels like they have some kind of obligation at least 
to, to recognize that. And it's, you know, it's not the ideal world, but it's the world we live in. And I, it is. And, you know, I appreciate shows that do end on notes of hope uh, because I think that's important that we end on notes of hope. Um, Silver Linings Playbook is about an individual who lives with bi uh, bipolar disorder and his, he's lost everything. He's lost his job. He's lost his, his marriage um, and he's hospitalized and he has to return to live back uh, at home with his parents. Um, and he fights for his relationship to, to get that back. He's, he's committed to doing that. And that's how that, that story ends. Um, the, the only thing to, to be cautious about is a relationship isn't the solution to one's mental health challenges. And, and we, we want to make sure because the family member supporting someone with mental health challenges it is a difficult road to be on. There are many things that are wonderful about their loved one to celebrate and enjoy, but there are also some very difficult parts of that. And so I do appreciate when a story ends on a note of hope. Um, and then again, including the educational components when possible. And yes, our, our uh, uh, filmmakers, our artists, our, our um um, our actors are speaking up more and more and sharing their own stories about their own challenges and why they connected with a certain character and a storyline so that the, the, the topic is brought up. It's discussed and we're discussing it op more openly. And all the beauty of that is as we do that, we can continue to improve from it. Um, we can continue to grow and learn from how do we take these topics that were once taboo um, and now bring them into the light because then we're going to be able to bring some attention to a much needed topic, um, which could affect um, all the change that we're going to need. Well, I brought up literacy and I always end the podcast by talking about books because that's where my passion is ultimately. And I just wanted to know if there were certain books that you've either read recently or were foundational books for you kind of on your journey to learning about mental illness and becoming fluent in this kind of area. I appreciate that because yes, books have really helped me again, sharing, I don't have a mental health background. What I have learned along the way has been a lot of interaction with those on this journey, understanding my own, um, and you are correct, education is really key to navigating any journey that you're on, especially one with some challenges. And so one of the very first books that I read when I started work with NAMI is a book called I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help by Dr. Javier Amador. And Dr. Amador had a brother that lived with schizophrenia and they had a wonderful relationship prior to the onset. And after the onset, his brother just spent many, many years in a revolving door of involuntary psychiatric holds, not effective, not engaged in treatment. And he couldn't understand why his brother would say the things he did and had the behaviors he did and the thoughts that he had. And so he spent his life's work understanding and, and really learning about the brain and how it worked. And so he really did a lot of work around the lack of insight that individuals have when they live with serious mental illness. And he developed a better way to communicate with individuals whose brains can't process insight or reason. 
and one who has insight and reason, so a healthier brain, how do they communicate so that it's effective, that it's less chaotic, that it's it's safer, um, and find their ways back to enjoying a relationship again. Um, and he did have success. His brother did finally um, obtain treatment that was effective and they enjoyed a, a very healthy relationship. Sadly, Dr. Amador's brother died in an accident, but it was doing a good deed. It wasn't due to his mental disorder. Um, he was helping someone get out of a way um, at a bus stop. And unfortunately, um, uh, there was a, he was hit by a vehicle. Wow. Um, so yeah, very, very tragic into that journey, but Dr. Amador's work and, and um, his journey with his brother lives on in that book and it's helped family members tremendously. And it really helped me understand um, a very dear friend of mine that would come into my life shortly after I started work with NAMI, um, who lives with serious mental illness and at times can have that disconnect because of the, it's a symptom of her disorder. Um, and for me to know that I have knowledge of uh, skills to be able to speak with her is very comforting for me. And it's, I believe, comforting for her because she knows she'll have a support system for her. Um, another book I read, um, Insane Consequences, um, and that is by an author, DJ Jaffe. And DJ Jaffe is probably one of the biggest critics of mental health advocates, which I consider myself to be a mental health advocate. I believe we need to advocate for mental health, the importance of it, so that we can keep people out of the system of care, not needing to get to the, not needing, not getting to crisis, so that the people who live with serious mental illness have access to all those resources that they need and our system's not um, flooded and clogged because it's already inadequate as it is. But DJ Jaffe's book, Insane Consequences, talks about the inadequate resources and how um, the, the, the way the structures currently are criminalize individuals who live with mental health challenges because they receive their care in the justice system versus the mental health system. Our three largest mental health facilities in our country are Rikers Island, Cook County Jail, and LA County Jail. Three, you know, jails, three prisons are providing the, the, uh, the largest mental health care in our country. That's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. So he talks about how we spend a lot of time addressing mental health, and we should really spend more time focusing on correcting this system. And he provides a lot of very valuable and um, realistic solutions. And again, a lot of it comes back to funding and leadership. What does leadership want to see happen? And are we going to take some steps um, to be bold and brave in changing our system of care to get our people out of the justice system, to keep them in diverting them from that and really helping people get um, treatment sooner than later for serious mental illnesses. So I found it extremely helpful to understand why people enter the justice system before they enter the mental health system of care. And then the last book I'll share, I, I recently, and I, I uh, listened to audiobooks a lot. So this one was an audio version and it was a very long audio version. So I was grateful it was audio, um, mm -hmm. but Hidden Valley Road by Robert Kolker is um, it is based on a true story uh, about a family with multiple loved ones living with schizophrenia. Um, they had many children and a couple of them um, did not uh, have the onset of this diagnosis, but several of the children did. 
and it just really looks into their life, um, what that was like all the way from, you know, before the, the parents were married and, and then being married and then the journey, again, that stigma around the parents um, and the shame that they carried and then the behaviors that were described um, and how different they have, they have the same diagnosis, but some of their behaviors were just so different amongst each of the children. And I just, it was, is very insightful to the family's journey um, of having loved ones living with serious mental illness. Um, worth the read. I highly recommend it. Audiobooks are great. I love to take a good long walk with an audiobook and then you just find an excuse to keep walking. Yeah. And then you get a call from somebody like, where are you? Like, I don't know. I guess I'm lost in my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> I want to I end by commiserating with you because I see the poster behind you, the Wonder Woman poster. Yeah. So what do you think happened with the newest movie? The first <laughs> one was so good. It was so good. What happened? What do you, I mean, did, how did you feel when you, did, have you watched it yet? I did. Okay. So how, okay. So, so how do you feel? Tell just, we can go through this grief process together. How do you feel? <laughs> I'm glad you acknowledge it. Well, um, I, I was disappointed because the first one was, is so well done. And, you know, I'm a Wonder Woman fan of Linda Carter days. Um, that's okay. what, that's the Wonder Woman version I grew up on. And, um, I had a hard time when it was being redone and I just thought no one absolutely no one can take the place of Linda Carter, but Gal Gadot has done a phenomenal job embracing this character and really bringing all of the traits that, you know, Wonder Woman stands for and, 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 and really showing us that on the screen. And so it was, um, yeah, I'm, I'm it's so okay. Bad. Just say it. Just okay. <laughs> it, it, I was built up, you know, and <laughs> disappointed that it was, it, it really was, it lacked content, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as they put, as soon as, well, for me, it's like when I saw Kristen Wiig was supposed to be the villain, I'm like, what the hell are they doing? Like, you're going to give an SNL character be the villain? I mean, Kristen Wiig is, for me, she's you always can't get, you can't get drunk back. as a bridesmaid on an airplane. Like, that is, that is, like, I cannot take that out of my brain and, and you see that throughout and you're waiting for the the comedy to come with it you're waiting for the twist on you know this this character that should be uh, again a villainous character and it's it's just i i couldn't see him as that i i, I saw him in many other ways um you know there were some things that i didn't think were very realistic to really even show um and I think it was a stretch for some of it. So, well, uh, you know, it was just such a sad, I mean, 2020 was already just a total shit show. And then you <laughs> add, Oh, Christmas day, you're going to get wonder woman too. It's going to be, and then you're, and then they're just like, here's the rug, just eat the floor. You know, I mean, they just shit on us again and it, it is what it is. You know, like we, <laughs> And I have to Just say, I'm, win, grateful. Right? I'm grateful I watched on Christmas Day because I had no commentary from anybody to interrupt my, you know, to really kind of change my vision of what I was expecting with this. Um, so I, at the end, I thought that was it. Yeah, I unfortunately had Twitter in my brain and I just, you know, I looked at it and it was like, can I get my two and a half hours back? And I was like, oh God, here we go. No, very long movie too. 
yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you sharing your story. Um, you. I appreciate uh, the work you do in Fresno. Where can people go to find out more about NAMI and the work you guys do? Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, our website's a great place to find us, and that's at namifresno.org. Um, and again, it's N-A-M-I. Um, if you do search for NAMI Fresno, make sure you look for the mental health organization, not the Japanese restaurant um, that is here as well. You can also find us on social media platforms. We are pretty active on Facebook and Instagram, and you can just look for NAMI Fresno to find us in both of those places. And then you can always call our office because we do operate a helpline. We're not 24 seven, but we do have a voicemail system. We do answer those messages and get back to our family members. Some of those calls are long. They can be 15 to 20 minutes. They might be an hour to an hour and a half um, just because someone needs to share lots of stuff to get to next steps. Um, and we wanna always afford that to people. So you can reach us at 559 2242469 and that comes directly to our office and someone most likely myself will get back with you but we may have another um, staff person or volunteer reaching back to you um, to uh, get your questions answered and help support you awesome well thanks for coming on chris thanks for the invite well that's our episode folks thank you for listening if you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, you can support us in two different ways. One, by supporting us financially, by contributing to our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best, or by leaving us a rating and review. See you next time.